0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch TechCrunchDailyCrunch.com it's fair to say that out-of-sight, out-of-mind is our mindset when we do this.
3: To my mind, it's like the whoosh of the toilet as you flush. It almost serves as a mind eraser. And then the invisibility of the whole infrastructure enables that flush-and-forget environment.
1: I mean, who wants to think twice about what goes into toilets and sewers? I mean, I'm with you, but some scientists and engineers have given this real thought. They see opportunities for improving the whole experience. For one, they want to dethrone the throne and replace it with a more efficient toilet. And they ask, what if we didn't waste our human waste, but turned it into something useful, such as a new source of energy or or even building materials? Well, wait, before you poo-poo the idea, take a listen to what's in the pipeline for toilets and waste recycling. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, the adage, waste not, want not, gets a modern spin. Creative ideas for recycling our biosolids and liquids, building a smarter toilet, and delivering toilets to billions of people who have no access to them makes us, in this episode, flush with excitement.
1: Sometimes our episode themes come from an unexpected direction, and that was the case with this one. Here's what got us started. An intriguing story appeared in our inbox about the outbox, as it were, of cats. Heads up, this discussion is about to become scatological.
4: We all know that our feline friends are not shy about exposing their rear ends. They do it when they're walking away, cleaning themselves, and cat owners know the sheer joy of waking up with your tabby's tush in your face.
1: As so often in science, young minds bring a fresh perspective to phenomena, as happened with 6th grader Caden Henry, who looking at his two house cats wondered... Does your
5: cat's butt really touch everything in the house?
1: I admit I hadn't given a lot of thought to this until I did, and then I couldn't stop thinking about it. Consider how a cat sits. You know, the tail goes up and the the rear end goes plunk. Now, imagine if your guests took that approach with your dining room chairs.
4: Not making this tabby subject taboo, Caden, with the help of his mother, Carrie Griffin, took an innovative approach to determining what contact cat butts and their germs might be making in their house. We think it's a whole new approach to science. Hi, Carrie and Caden. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You created a unique science fair project, I think it's safe to say. What was the question you were after?
5: We've had like a lot of catches like sit on our dining room table or sit on like where we put our heads on the couch or Mm -hmm. on our beds, pillows. So I just wanted to know, uh, does your cat's butthole truly touch it or not? In
4: fact, I think that this was the title of of the uh, poster board that you made it was does your cat's butthole really touch all the surfaces in your home yeah that yeah that's the title
6: (laughs) i've grown up with cats and so my cats were allowed everywhere but my husband is not as big of a cat lover as i am so he was a little hesitant about allowing them on a lot of the surfaces in the home So we decided to just put the theory to test.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Caden, introduce us to your cat. Two cats participated in this experiment. Is that right? What are their names? Uh, We have Taco,
5: who's sleeping near us right now. And then we have uh, our cat, Buka, who's, she's a medium fur and uh, is gray and fluffy. And then Taco is short-haired, but very energetic.
4: Okay, so we have a short-haired, very energetic Cat named Taco and a longer or medium haired cat named Buka. Well, Caden, I wonder if I could challenge your scientific question before we get into what you did because um, cats are often cleaning their rear ends. So, can't we assume that the cat's end would be clean?
5: Yes, it's clean, but like their lower intestines are right on the other side of that. And you know that there's going to be like some poop in there. So, <laughs> yeah.
4: How did you decide to um, answer this question? How do you determine uh, where a cat's butt has been? I think I was the one who came up with the lipstick.
6: So we were thinking of different things we could put on the rear end that would easily come off and transfer to another surface, but yet not harm them in any kind of way. You came up
4: with lipstick, it sounds like, and Caden, that seemed like a good idea to you, lipstick? Yeah, lipstick seemed like it would be
5: better because it would like stick on to the surface and it wouldn't be anything harmful to the cat either.
6: And we wanted to make sure to get the cheap stuff that would easily smear if it made any contact.
5: (laughs) Um, What was the shade? Our two cats had different uh, colors. I think Buka had dark, uh, yeah, Buka, Buka had pink and
4: Taco had dark red. Okay, kind of classic uh, lipstick colors. All right, uh, so you you put the lipstick on the cat's anus. Um, how did you do that? If you could, the extent to which you're willing, can you provide an image for us? One would hold the cat, the other would just put it on there. They weren't really bothered by it. I
6: just lifted the tail and whoop, whoop, whoop in like two seconds, and it was on, and we were good to go
4: from there. And then Caden took over giving commands. <laughs> And then did you let the cats just wander around and do their thing? Or what happened next?
6: We actually used like a flat sheet that was white. So Caden, he had them sit and then stand up on their back legs and then sit back down and then do a high five on the beds. And then they did the same on, on a pillow as well that was placed on the bed. And then they did the same commands on the nightstand and on the carpeted surface with a piece of paper on it and also the tile floor
4: in the hallway. So was the idea by having them do all of these different movements of sitting and standing on their two legs in the high fives so they would be sitting and kind of putting their weight on their butts in different ways?
6: Yeah, just movements. So when they come back down, they sit down in a different way. And then, boom, we'll see if we have um, any smears or not <laughs> after they sit back up. <laughs> well, were
4: you worried that the cats would lick the lipstick off?
5: No, not really, because they don't really clean themselves around us. They normally just go down to the sunroom and go off of a cat
4: treat and do it. So we weren't really worried about that. All right. Well, here's the big reveal. Caden and Carrie, um, what is the answer? Should we be putting undergarments on our cats? Where did the lipstick turn up? I should say the lipstick prints. (laughs) Where did the lipstick prints turn up? It turned
5: out on the bed and on the pillow. It didn't turn out on the tile nor the nightstand. So mostly soft surfaces will be touched by a little bit by
4: cats. That's only tacos. The lipstick smear... Came from only one of your cats. Yes. So Taco has the short hair, and Taco's smear, lipstick smear, appeared on soft surfaces.
6: It wasn't a print. It was not like a circular print that was left. It was just a, a real soft, just like a little smudge, like a um, not even a smear because it wasn't thick or anything. It literally was like his hair brushed
4: the sheets. How do you how do you explain that? Why just the the short-haired cat, but not the medium medium-haired cat? Because. Buka's long haired, the cat's
5: uh, hair on its, like around its butt, presses down on the tile, like blocking the butt from actually t- making contact. And Taco's short haired, like really short haired. It would kind of touch it, but not all the way. After doing this
6: and posting it on Facebook, we did get confirmation from lots of hairless cat owners, and they swear their cat's butts are touching these surfaces. So, It it definitely is dependent on hair. So
4: cats that have no hair, their butts are definitely touching surfaces in your home. Well, finally, like a good scientist, I am assuming that you, um, if you didn't publish your results, you did the sixth grade version of publishing results. You presented them at the science fair, didn't you? And uh, what was the peer review? What did people say?
5: Uh, Really just kind of like relief that their cat's butt isn't touching mostly everything. I mean, so many
6: science teachers commented on it. Um teachers that used to judge science fairs, you know, retired teachers, there was so many people that left so many wonderful, really great comments. I actually screenshotted a lot of them. And I printed them out and I saved them in his uh, homeschool portfolio. So
4: so he'll have those for years to come. <laughs> That's lovely. That is going to be an item on the resume or on the CV that will make someone's eyebrows raise. Well, Caden Henry and Carrie Griffin, his mother, thank you so much for joining us to tell this true tale of getting to the bottom of cat behavior.
6: Thank you so much. Thank you.
4: Everybody wants to be a cat a cat's the only cat
6: who where is Tell me everybody's picking up on that feline beat Cause everything else is obsolete
1: Budding scientist Caden Henry and his mother Carrie Griffin within an experiment that apparently didn't go too far.
7: I thought it was a great study. I like the fact that they identified a research question and developed a hypothesis, and then came up with a way to test that hypothesis. I'm Yvette Johnson-Walker. I'm a veterinary epidemiologist at the College of Veterinary Medicine, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in the Center for One Health.
4: Yvette, let's begin with your general take, your reaction to Caden and Carrie's experiment.
7: I love the creativity of the lipstick on the cat butt. Uh, I'll never look at my lipstick again the same way. (laughs) And Carrie did tell me
4: later that they toss all of those lipsticks immediately.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Um, If not, there might be another interview we need to do on some of the public health consequences of lipsticks on cat butts and people lips. I don't know.
4: Well, what is your take on their conclusions about whether cat anuses are touching everything in our houses? Now, their conclusion was that they're touching soft objects, more often soft objects than hard objects, and that the bottoms of um, less hairy cats are touching more things than cats whose rears are padded by fur.
7: Well, again, their approach was really novel, and there's probably some logic behind the conclusions that they reached. But I think if we're talking about the potential for disease transmission and whether or not dog or cat butts are particularly dangerous, I think we have to consider what pathogen you're worried about. There's a 2009 study that talked about uh, finding no difference in isolating roundworm eggs from the hair of the back of dogs compared to the anal region. And then a more recent 2015 study looked at pets from the homes of people with uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus infections, or MRSA, and they found that the mouth was the best sampling site for isolating the pathogenic Staphylococcus from the pets. And so I think from head to toe, there, depending on the pathogen you're worried about, there are different risks of those surfaces being contaminated or serving as a risk of transmission of potential disease to pet owners.
4: So that contradicts our image of cats having very clean rear ends because they're spending so much time cleaning them. Are you saying that perhaps they're not as clean as we think they are?
7: Well, I think pets, just like people, if they're infected and they're shedding an organism, they can shed those organisms from their respiratory tract or their mouth from their skin, their hair, their dander, or from urine or fecal matter. In most cases, the risk is still low that they'll transmit anything to people, and we can minimize that risk with good hygiene. But again, if you're colonized by an organism, depending on where that organism is living, then that portion of your body has the potential to transmit the organism to surfaces or perhaps to other members of the household.
4: Can humans pick up the diseases of dogs and cats?
7: There are some diseases. Those are referred to as zoonotic diseases, diseases that are transmissible between animals and people. I think what's key to recognize is that the pet really is part of the family. It's part of the household. And if one member of the household is sick with an agent that is transmissible, then the other members of the family can acquire that infection, including the pet. And in fact, a 2020 study concluded that the household functions as an integrated microbiological unit. And so if the cat has it, then you probably have it too. And in fact, you may have given it to the cat.
4: Although not all those bacteria and viruses are harmful, are they? We share our microbiome with our pets and they share theirs with us. And some of those microorganisms are beneficial or just benign.
7: Right and that's really part of that foundation of the growing body of scientific literature that that says that pets have a beneficial effect on the humans in the household Uh, better overall health and survival young children that live in households with pets have been shown to have reduced allergies asthma upper respiratory tract infections and reduced use of antibiotics and so there are a lot of benefits And at the same time, there are some risks, but we can minimize those risks really with just a few simple steps focusing on good hygiene.
4: Say more about minimizing the risks. When you say focusing on hygiene, are we talking about old fashioned soap and water?
7: Sure, that's going to be part of it. That's always the very foundation of it. Washing your hands after you handle your pets, their bedding, and their food and treats is going to be important. I think one of the things we want to recognize, though, is that if the animal is going outside, the feet may be in contact with fecal matter that might be theirs or other animals. Because of the licking and grooming that dogs and cats do, there's the potential for them to move bacteria kind of from the anal area to the fur all over their body. And so focusing just on that one area is really not gonna prevent Risk of transmission.
4: Well, you you mentioned the pets' bedding. Of course, sometimes their bedding is our bedding. And Carrie and Caden said that their cats sleep on their bed, sleep on their pillows. Um, is that a problem? Should they be more worried about it than they are? They're not. They're not bothered about it. Most cat owners are not bothered about that.
7: I think that as long as their pet is current on its vaccination and isn't shedding parasites and is an indoor cat then I'm not worried so much about it walking on surfaces in the house or in the bedding, in the bedroom. If they are an indoor outdoor cat, there is the potential that they interact with wildlife and that they could indeed bring pathogens into the home that can cause a risk to people.
4: Okay. So as you said, it is common sense that we would apply to ourselves and also to our pets in terms of staying clean and and healthy. Well, finally, um, Yvette, you know, some cat and dog owners put coats and even little booties on their pets. In your experience, have you met anyone who insisted their pet wear undergarments because of their concern about spreading germs?
7: Uh, I do know that people who have pet chickens, there are little diapers available that you can purchase for your chickens so that they can come into the house. Uh, I would recommend not doing that. Uh, There have been several outbreaks of uh, salmonella in people associated with having pet chickens and that uh, even wearing the diapers, uh, they're washed and there's just the potential for contamination of the household.
4: (laughs) Well, diapers on chickens is not what I expected you to say, Yvette. (laughs) It creates an image I may not be able to get rid of. It's such a treat to have you back on the program. Thanks, Yvette. Thank
7: you for having me. It was great fun talking to you again, too.
1: Yvette Johnson-Walker is a veterinarian and epidemiologist at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine and School of Public Health. Okay, well, you remember that we preceded that story by saying it intrigued us and became the motivation, actually, for this episode. Tracking feline bio-waste got us thinking about where human waste goes and whether it might pose a problem. Well, it turns out it does, but there are solutions. Coming up, an inquisitive science writer who reports on the future of a familiar device.
3: So there's a new toilet that I reported on, a new type of um, urine diversion toilet. There's people working on making electricity from it. So kind of the idea that you could charge your cell phone by peeing on a charger that would convert your urine into power for your cell phone, which would be fantastic.
4: Efforts to make human waste useful next. This episode is Flush with Excitement on Big Picture Science.
1: We're cracking open the door to one of the most private things we do, going to the bathroom. How and where we do it is, well, let's face it, kind of a taboo subject. But the discussion is becoming more public. Engineers are seeing opportunities to make everything more efficient.
4: But if you're asking, what is all the commode, Shun? Well, we could also ask, why isn't our mind in the toilet?
3: To my mind, it's like the whoosh of the toilet as you flush, as almost serves as a mind eraser. And then the invisibility of the whole infrastructure enables that flush-and-forget environment. And the consequence of that is that we've allowed our toilets to more or less remain the same for more than 150
4: years. It was the Victorians, wasn't it, Seth, who built the first modern urban sewer system and... In- and really made toilets a common convenience in homes.
1: Yep, this was another consequence of the Industrial Revolution, really. It was because the River Thames, it of course, runs through London, was stinking with the human waste that was thrown into it. And remember, back in the mid-19th century, people thought that disease was caused by vapors in the air. So they figured that was what was responsible for a lot of the disease. They wanted to fix it. I think that was the miasma theory of disease, wasn't it? Yep, it was miasma. If you had bad miasma, you you might get something and not just asthma, you might get cholera.
4: And they realized that the way to clean up what was in the air was to clean up what was flowing through the roads and into the river.
1: Yeah, all sewage was just being dumped into the the river. So they needed to figure out how to deal with that. And they built the sewer system of London by, you know, trenching up all the major streets, putting brick sewers underneath them, and so forth. And as soon as you had a sewer system, well, then you could have improved toilets. And they went after that, too.
4: Well, that was a huge improvement 150 years ago, but engineers and scientists today see even more room for improvement. And they want to build more efficient toilets and get them to the startling number of people who don't have access to them or to proper sanitation at all. They also want to make practical use of bio-waste, Science journalist Chelsea Wald reports on this can do attitude in her book, Pipe Dreams The Urgent Global Quest to Transform the Toilet.
3: I do think of the toilet as a kind of paradox. Um, On the one hand, they are modern miracles, and they've allowed us to live longer lives by taking the pathogens in our poop far away from us, and um, they make our lives much less stinky and allow us to live in increasingly larger cities. On the other hand, when I started looking into toilets, I I realized that the toilet toilet that we use today is in many ways not up for a lot of the challenges of the coming years, the next century, like from climate change to rapid urbanization and resource scarcity, soil degradation, toxic pollution, um, novel disease outbreaks, and growing inequality.
1: Well, you say it's not up to future challenges. Uh, you've named a few areas, I mean, climate change and so forth, what does that have to do with my toilet? What, what is it lacking that it needs? Well,
3: I think everyone knows that the toilet wastes water and toilets have improved in that regard. But, you know, uh, as more and more people in the world get hooked up to piped water, they're really going to need alternatives other than the flush toilet if we're not just going to um, create a situation or exacerbate a situation in which many, many people in the world are going to have to deal with water scarcity on a very regular basis. And then when you also, when you add water to um, our pee and our poo, what you're doing is diluting the nutrients and energy in there, making it harder to recover it. So as we deal with like scarcity of resources, um, and we start to look more and more toward pee and poo as resources that we can tap to get energy and nutrients, adding water um, looks increasingly, um, like an inappropriate solution for the future
1: you know i have to admit that i'm always fascinated by the differences in toilets to begin with there are those platform toilets in germany and the netherlands and so forth and i often wonder why would anybody do that it doesn't seem very appetizing to me i lived with it for many years why do they have those platform toilets
3: yeah, so I've, I always thought that was really funny as well, because when you go to um, Northern Europe, especially Germany, but also in the Netherlands where I live, there's a there's kind of a flat part in the toilet. When you poop, it lands on the platform and it's like not it doesn't plop into the water. And the reason is I, I looked into it as I discovered that that people from that part of the world believe that that inspecting your poop um, can teach you something about your health. And there is some science to that. I mean, there are, it, you can look, for example, at the color and the shape of your poop to check on your health. So if you have like a really black poop, that means there's blood in it and you should probably go to a doctor. Um, But I have noticed that those types of toilets are decreasing in in popularity, even at the same time that it may be that there is a new type of product that will potentially be coming online um, sometime in the next few years, which are medical toilet seats or medical toilets that will then inspect, potentially inspect your poop for you. There's in fact One toilet seat on the market for senior living centers that can do that already, and you know it's funny to think that a computer might inspect your toilet um, in the future.
1: I've got to say, Chelsea, uh, if it can be done automatically by a high-tech toilet, I I would much prefer that than you know trying to take samples myself or just looking (laughs) at it with an unexpert eye. I mean, that's quite a few. You can
3: sign. You can sign yourself up, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So. To get an idea of the magnitude of this problem, I mean it isn't just toilets, you can make toilets very inexpensively, Uh, you write that less than half the world's population has access to a toilet connected to a sewer system or a septic tank. 700 million people depend on makeshift toilets? Can you describe the kinds of facility they have access to? Yeah, so just
3: a little bit of clarification is that first number, half the world's population, more than half the world's population doesn't have what's called safely managed sanitation. So they may in fact have a flush toilet connect to a sewer system, but there's no treatment at the end of that system. So there's a lot of cities in the world that don't actually have functioning wastewater treatment. Where does it go? It goes directly into the water. And so um, you end up with uh, raw sewage and waterways.
1: Look, there's a big infrastructure problem. It isn't the toilets per se. Uh, I'm sure they're relatively inexpensive compared to the cost of building sewage pipes or tunnels or whatever they are, and then the treatment plant at the other end. Just for reference, you know, I'm here in the first world, or at least they like to think that. Uh, where, where, Where is all the stuff that goes down my toilet? Where does it end up? I mean, it's in a treatment plant, presumably. And then what happens to it?
2: Yeah. So
3: it depends on your specific situation. But if you live in a city connected to or or in any place that you're connected to a sewer system and not, say, a septic tank, you know, a fifth of Americans use septic tanks or other on-site sanitation. So that's quite common. But um, it should flow to a treatment plant. In treatment plant technology, the base, the core technology there is is already over 100 years old as well. Um, and basically, it separates a liquid portion and a solid portion. The liquid portion tends to go into a local um, body of water after being cleaned. Um, there's different levels of, of cleaning. I mean, a lot of cities have had to add many different levels of sort of filters and and disinfection, but not everyone does. It depends where it's going. And then the solid portion is as a residue that can be sent to sometimes to landfill, um, sometimes gets incinerated, and sometimes um, is used as a regulate EPA regulated fertilizer that can go um, on farmlands.
1: All right. Well, then let's let's enumerate what you could use that stuff for. We'll start with the. Ooh, because you already mentioned that, I, I can see the use as fertilizer. I mean, even historically, as probably was done 10,000 years ago, I don't know. But what else is in there that's of any value? I, I've never thought much about, you know, what would be in there that would be worth recovering?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there's like a whole set of nutrients. This is the, the sort of residue of food that goes through your system. And a lot of those nutrients don't don't get absorbed, but instead pass through you and uh, and can be, be used as fertilizer there's also organic carbon which is important for for soil the quality of the soil so like it's like manure you know (laughs) it's manure it's just your manure Uh, some people call it humanure (laughs) and urine um urine is really great it's got all of these nutrients but it doesn't have the pathogens and the poop so urine in itself is a very um nice substance to work with in this regard And then the the chemical bonds in your, you know, in in your waste also contain energy and that that can be extracted as well. And then, um, you know, people are coming up with other kinds of novel uh, ways to to use pee and poops, for example, to make bricks like as a building material. And also there's information in there, um, like medical information um, that that can be
1: useful. Well, you start your book by writing about, you know, an experiment in the Netherlands where mm. you live. Uh, and yeah. maybe the countries that need this sort of uh, technology the most are maybe the last ones to do it simply because of the costs.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people in the world don't have any toilets, So hundreds of millions of people practice open defecation. Um, and then beyond that, people might use buckets or they might use something that I saw in Indonesia, which they call it helicopter toilet there, which is a sort of platform over the directly over water with a hole in it. Um, they might use pit latrines, which could be in good or not very good condition. And They might use plastic bags um, if they, you know, if they have to resort to that, especially in densely populated slums where there's no room to dig a hole in the ground, for example, or where those holes might fill up very quickly. I looked into a new kind of approach called container-based sanitation. I visited a project in Haiti that's doing this in densely populated urban areas. Um, But this is happening in cities all over the world. And it actually harkens back to night soil collection, which was um, a a pre-sewer kind of system that uh, where people would, where, where night soil workers would come and collect poop and take it out to farmlands from from people's homes. And that's what this company, um, the Social Enterprise in Haiti is doing. It rents people um, toilets that they can put in their homes in a private place. There's a container inside of it um, that they use, and then they can put out a couple times a week uh, for workers to come and collect. And those workers then take it, Back to a composting center outside of town, and turned it into compost. And there, they're also um, they've just started investigating some other things that they can do with the poop. One of them is to feed it to the the larvae of the black soldier fly. Flies are normally really bad um, in terms of spreading disease because they they like to land on poop and then land on food and they spread pathogens in that way. But in this case, these flies don't do that. As adults, they don't eat. So they won't do that. But as maggots, they do eat. And so they they and they'll eat anything, especially like organic waste, and they'll eat feces. And so if you put them on feces, they grow and grow and they get plumper and plumper. And then once they're fully grown, they make a really good source of protein for animal feed. And so this is something that's being tried around the world as well, um, successfully in Kenya at the moment.
1: You know, I don't hear a lot of discussion about either the problems or the potential solutions uh, involved with all this because, of course, or maybe I shouldn't say of course, it's a sort of a taboo subject.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons is that that we have this this kind of core emotion, basic emotion of disgust, that arises when um, we deal or talk about deal with or talk about poop, and uh, and disgust is an emotion that that has protected us. Um, it seems to serve to protect people and might have protected our ancestors from things that would have harmed them, like poop, but also rotten food and other things with pathogens in them. But in this case it you know it can overreact so there's a famous study by Paul Rosen and colleagues in which he showed that that people wouldn't eat fudge in the shape of a turd <laughs> because they thought of the poop before they thought of the fudge, Um, even though it was just delicious fudge, there was no poop in it at all. And so, you know, I think that disgust can overreact and get in our way of of thinking uh, intelligently um, about this issue and planning for the future and accepting changes that might be beneficial
1: yeah, I guess we're still, in in some ways, in the Victorian era. When it, I, I'm not talking about the hardware we use here, but simply the mentality that there are certain subjects that one does not discuss, even though this is an important problem. You write a little bit about recycling urine, P-cycling, I think you call P-cycling. it.
3: P-cycling, yeah. yeah. Not my word, yeah, well, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> well. So there's some a new toilet that I reported on, a new type of um urine diversion toilet, and this one uses um a, f- a phenomenon called the teapot effect, um, which is what happens when you pour a liquid out of a teapot, and it kind of some of it kind of dribbles down the side and holds on, so your urine sort of dribbles down the side into a special hole, and um and then on the side of what to do with it, in addition to um old ways of turning it into a fertilizer, just like aging it. There's other ideas. There's a a scientist who's found out how to, figured out how to turn it into a disinfectant. There's people working on making electricity from it. So kind of the idea that you could charge your um, cell phone by peeing on a, on a charger that would convert your urine into power for your cell phone, which would be fantastic. And um, or uh, the last one that I saw that was really intriguing was a scientist in South Africa, an engineer rather in South Africa who was using urine. To turn sand into kind of a brick by by combining urine with some um, bacteria and sand and it would it it molds into a brick of any shape that you want, so in that in that way creating a built an interesting building material so there's a there 's a lot of work in this area that excites me
1: yeah that well uh, that 's remarkable i, I don 't know how I feel about you know considering renting a, a flat in one of those buildings, maybe they 'd better not tell me until i've moved in i don't know Chelsea Wald, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Yeah, my pleasure.
4: Chelsea Wald is a science and environmental reporter, and she is the author of Pipe Dreams, the urgent global quest to transform the toilet. Probably not what he meant when Sonny Clark entitled this song, Royal Flush.
1: Well, we have some more novel perspectives on some old themes. Coming up, A closer look at the creative ways we might take what is out of sight and put it back in mind.
4: This episode is flush with excitement on Big Picture Science.
1: a lot of creative ideas for how to turn human waste into something useful. And as we heard, engineers are turning it into things like building materials and even an energy source.
4: Did you notice, Seth, that Chelsea reported on projects to turn human biosolids and also urine into bricks,
1: but also... The idea of medical diagnoses or bio crude that you could use as airplane fuel or as cooking fuel in in Kenya those are all things that we could use. Uh, some others are using urine as a disinfectant or even
4: using it to um, <laughs> even using it to generate electricity and power
1: your cell phone. I mean, she sort of gave an overview of why these projects are actually. You know, of of necessity now to begin with, there's simply the waste of all the water that goes down the down the toilet, so to speak. So you know, a lot of these things are promising. Uh, some of them involve high tech or rebuilding infrastructure, but it isn't all in the future, as our reporter Sarah Derwin discovered when she was making a visit to the botanical gardens at the University of Michigan.
0: I was here the other day with my husband, enjoying some summertime weather, and I really wanted to go to the peony garden. Peonies are some of my favorite summer flowers, they're so beautiful and giant and robust and they smell so sweet. So we come up on the entrance and there's a trail map and some posters, but one poster in particular caught my eye. It had a line drawing of flowers on it, it was really pretty, but it was the title that really caught my attention, Pee on the Peonies. I mean, <laughs> not only is it a great title, but it also is exactly the topic we are covering this week on Big Picture Science. Clearly, this is a sign that I needed to find out
4: more. So Sarah answered nature's call. She returned to the botanical gardens to find out more about the project turning urine into fertilizer and the challenges for scaling up such projects to save resources to help combat climate change. This is a place where you mind your pee and we have a lot of cues.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Nancy Love. I'm a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Michigan.
0: Okay, so Nancy, we are sitting next to this beautiful field of peonies. And the title of your project is called Pee on the Peonies. Now, are you actually watering these beautiful plants with urine?
2: We did water the uh, four beds of these plants with this year, because of the pandemic, a synthetic urine. Unfortunately, but we do have a urine collection system on campus. We usually are collecting a few hundred gallons of urine per year. And if it was a normal year, then we would have used real urine. And yes, we process it, we concentrate it, we remove pathogens. If it was real urine, we would remove pharmaceuticals. We can also separate the phosphorus from the nitrogen and potassium if we need to. So how do you separate the phosphorus from the nitrogen and potassium in urine? so it turns out depending upon what you're trying to fertilize if it's a crop you're going to eat or a flower they have different needs of nitrogen potassium and phosphorus ideally we want to separate all three of those and then put them back together in the ratio that that plant needs in the case of the peonies as is typical in this region there's plenty of phosphorus in the soil so we removed the phosphorus and we did that through a process called struvite precipitation we add some magnesium and the phosphorus and some of the ammonium comes out in a really nice white crystalline powder so that somewhere else where they need phosphorus, we can give them the struvite. And here now we have the nitrogen and potassium.
0: Okay, so you precipitate out two things from the urine, nitrogen and potassium, which you apply to the peonies, and the phosphorus, which makes struvite. What is struvite?
2: Struvite is a mineral that is comprised of magnesium, ammonium, and phosphate. It's a really nice fertilizer for farmers. They need magnesium in the soil. They need the phosphorus. They need the nitrogen. So it's got all three. While struvite is wonderful to capture as a fertilizer, it can also be a problem in urine separation systems. And this is often where urine separation systems get a bad name. The struvite can form in the pipes where you convey and collect urine if you don't manage that correctly, and then it clogs the pipes. In our system, we actually use either vinegar or citric acid to acidify the urine, and then we have no struvite problems in the pipes. In fact, the facilities people here on campus love us because our urine-separating toilet and waterless churnal in particular are the only ones they don't have to maintain and clean out the pipes. <laughs>
0: you don't think about facilities
2: actually you know, appreciating oh. some
0: of this stuff, but yeah. So... Okay. So you mentioned that um, you have a urine separating system. Where is that? Is it on the botanical gardens? Is it
2: on campus? Where Where is that done? It's on University of Michigan's North Campus. There's a male and a female bathroom. And in the female bathroom, we have the source separating toilet, a Wosman, which is from Europe. And then in the male bathroom, uh, one of the urinals is a waterless urinal that has a sign over it. And the urine goes to the what we call the urine processing room downstairs, where we concentrate it, we pasteurize it, and then we can remove pharmaceuticals using a sorption process. The concentration step is an innovative step that was developed by the Rich Earth Institute that uses freeze concentration, um, which is the same process used to concentrate some of our fruit juices. When you get those frozen cans of orange juice in the freezer, they've removed the water by freezing the water, and the salts freeze last so you can get the water out and separate that way.
0: Now we're standing on the edge of, this is probably like a football sized field. Don't you mm-hmm. think of peonies? Yes, I mean, it's huge and it's, it's my dream, frankly. I love peonies. Can you point out which rows, because I can't tell, are in the
2: experiment. So we're sitting in front of these four beds, and those are the beds where we applied the urine fertilizer to these two beds and then not to those two beds. So in
0: this this experimental plot, what comparisons between urine-derived fertilizer on a peony plant and unfertilized plants, what's the difference there? What are you looking for?
2: Looking at number of buds, we're looking at the color of the leaves, we're looking at disease indication, etc. It's tricky here because the peony garden, all peonies come in pairs, and they're right next to each other. So the ideal experiment would have been to fertilize one and not the other, but they're in the same bed, and we determined that would be too hard to keep the fertilizer (laughs) where we wanted it. So we went at the bed scale, and so we're gonna be comparing the beds. Um, To be honest with you, our partners, Rich Earth Institute, has been using urine dry fertilizer for years on wheat in Vermont. And so they have six years of data. And more than, you know, really, as long as you're putting the nitrogen and phosphorus on, it's not going to be that different from a synthetic fertilizer. What's different is the environmental impact of what you've done.
0: So Nancy, can you explain to me how using, you know, human waste, urine, might be actually energy efficient, um, saving resources? Can you explain a little bit more about that?
2: With our wastewater treatment in, in our communities, it's focused on removing carbon, And in the state of Michigan, phosphorus often, if you're near an ocean, nitrogen, and pathogens. So those are our main focus. And when you start adding nitrogen removal, that can increase substantially the um, energy cost per gallon of water processed. And so now you have a much more complex system. If we focused our wastewater plants in our communities on carbon capture, basically and turning that carbon into a useful product and turning it into a co-product that an industry could use or something like that and took away kind of the need to manage nitrogen and phosphorus as well and handle that mostly by separating the urine and processing that through its own means and its own methods, uh, we're going to be much more efficient that way. We reduce the energy cost associated with the treatment plant. Wastewater treatment plants and drinking water plants are sometimes the largest electricity user in a city. And so if we can reduce that energy cost, we're helping the city become a greener city. And we're producing products that can go right back into our food nutrient cycle
0: Okay, so there's two things that could make our current wastewater treatment system more efficient. One, we put the extracted carbon to better use. But the other one is to have separate processing of urine into its components, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, so we can recycle them. And I understand that this is particularly beneficial
2: when it comes to dealing with the mineral phosphorus. Why? Phosphorus and potassium are both mined, which means you have heavy metal contamination issues, and they are environmentally um, potentially problematic. Those processes can be very damaging. Phosphorus isn't everywhere. So the United States has phosphorus mines. West Africa has phosphorus mines. China has phosphorus mines. It's not everywhere. Most countries have to import their phosphorus. And if you don't have phosphorus, you can't grow food. And so finding internal ways to recycle that phosphorus you do bring into your country and reuse it as many times as you can is really beneficial. The problem is we have trillions of dollars of infrastructure in the other option. And so as we upgrade our infrastructure, uh, what we really want to do is get people making decisions and putting urine separation on the table as an option to consider as we start to rebuild our, our water infrastructure, which is at age.
0: Well, Finally, Nancy, I'm sad that we have to wrap this up because I'm enjoying my morning in front of the peonies, but what are the challenges for scaling this up if we wanted to go bigger for agriculture and fields and and crops? No, that's a great
2: great question again, and we've been working on that, so a couple of things. Um, One is ordinances and regulations. There is a yellow panel commission, as opposed to blue, but of course it's urine, so it has to be yellow, that is being managed through a couple of different organizations, Recode, Richard Institute, but it has people across the world who work on this, developing um, approaches and, and looking at current regulations and how we can open them up so that urine separation is allowed, and then the processing, even conveying urine. Like we've done separation events here in Ann Arbor. Right now, because of the ordinances, we can't put that jug of urine in our car and drive it to our lab. We have to hire a septage hauler. So those kinds of impediments are things we have to address. The plumbing code is a huge issue. There is already in the green plumbing code an appendix for source separating toilets. It just needs to move from the appendix into the code. So we know how to do all this stuff. The toilets for the further separation, they're designed and developed currently in Europe. We need Amazon and others to sell them here in the United States. The technology I am not worried about. We know how to convert this. We know how to manage it. We know how to get it. It's the policy, the governance, and the perceptions that are the bigger issues. It's amazing how many water utilities are interested. So we have New York City, Denver, um, Detroit's actually started to come around thinking about this. Paris is actually, I think, implemented some year in separation or they're they're moving on in design. These are big cities with big systems who understand the dollar per gallon issue that they're dealing with and how this can change their footprint, their energy and their sustainability footprint. So it's moving. And as we invest in our new infrastructure, I really don't wanna be investing in 1980s and 1990s technology. We need to be getting ourselves into the future. Nancy Love, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Sarah. It was really wonderful to meet out here in front of the beautiful flowers.
1: That was reporter Sarah Derwin at the Botanical Garden at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where she spoke with Nancy Love, a professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the university.
4: So what we're hearing in this show is that there are plans for updating the toilet, but also our aging and outdated sewer systems.
1: These things are obviously needed, but on the other hand, you could also say that the real need is for sanitation for the Billions of people on the earth who don't have it yet at any level.
4: And the other thing we might need to replace is our attitude toward recycling bio waste, liquid or solid.
1: Yeah, well, we got to get over this attitude that we have that, you know, we really don't want to talk about anything scatological or do anything about it. Toilets seem to work just fine. We can improve upon the engineering done by the Victorians. I mean, who hasn't replaced a, a float valve <laughs> in their toilet? And you know, that goes back to Thomas Crapper in the, in the 19th century. There's always room for improvement here if we can just bring ourselves to do it.
4: Well, we couldn't do this show without those that bowl us over with their talent, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer, and this week reporter Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
1: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates how biological evolution produces complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
4: Special thanks to some of our Patreon supporters, Joseph, Sverre in Oslo, and Jim Turman in Sunnyvale, California.
1: And you too can join us on Patreon and hear your name in the credits, get access to exclusive bonus material, and more at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience.
4: Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of our program. And if you haven't already, well, we hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Flush with Excitement.
6: We just had to shake some treats, get them in there, apply lipstick, do a few rounds of commands. And then they were done. We hit them with the baby wipe in the rear and wiped everything all clean and they were out of there.